Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to Transitions. This is the final episode in the series Transitions, brought to you by the Mental Health Professionals Network. And I'm Julianne White, a mental health social worker working in rural New South Wales. And I'm Monica Moore, a GP with a special interest in mental health. Today, Monica and I are looking at uh, transitions in relationships and in life in general. And this is a way of wrapping up this series. We've looked at a variety of areas in our lives where transitions dominate or uh, just challenge us psychologically, professionally and personally. So, Monica, for this final uh, session today or final episode, just what are some of your musings or thoughts that um, come to mind for you? Well, I was thinking I wanted to finish on a positive note because some of the issues that we've been musing on uh, have a dark side and and it's like, uh, you know, you mentioned in episode five how much reading I do and it's true. Uh, some people drink alcohol, some people eat chocolate, uh, others, you know, watch sports TV for hours on end and I read. Uh, that's how I distract, distance, dissociate, um, uh, you know, the three Ds of denial of life. But it, it, it does have its positive side and I was reading Catherine May's Wintering, which is a book that she's written to really highlight the concept that we know that in nature there are seasons, that um, all of nature is used to this, the animals, the plants. It's only humans who believe that we have to live in an eternal summer and to normalise the darkness, to normalise the barrenness of some of, of the seasons in our lives and and to look at how we can make changes in our lives or, or really look at how we can use our resources to get through those difficult times. And and when I was thinking about this and how this last um, discussion we're having today is the transitions in our relationships, not just our relationships with other people, but our relationships with ourselves and how we can be aware of that, how we can change things, how we can do it better, and yet at the same time recognise that there are some things that are completely out of our control. Mm, really good points. I really loved it when you brought up about um, Catherine May's book, Wintering, and I've used it. I was thinking the other day, I've used it with a couple of clients this week, and it's just been remarkable because I remembered as I was talking to this lady about the concept of wintering, that it was a few episodes ago that you had actually shared with me this beautiful metaphor of being a lobster. And sometimes when we shed a skin or the lobster sheds his skin, he's got to find a cave. When he's a small lobster, he finds a small one appropriate to his size. And then he grows the new skin, gets out there in the world and does his thing. And then a period of time comes where he needs to shed that skin again so he finds a bigger cave. And the wintering is very much like going into your cave, being able to be in a safe place whereby we are vulnerable, our skin is showing, it's a bit raw, we don't quite know how to do it, and we provide ourselves time to grow a new skin. And like the concept of wintering, they're just such beautiful, beautiful metaphors that actually sometimes do more than just 
you know, some of the other conversations we can have where people can bring their own picture to mind to help them with whatever problem or difficulty that they're, or just, you know, it doesn't have to be a problem or a difficulty, just some view, a different way of thinking about this time in their lives, which can be challenging, that sense of uncertainty. I don't know what will be when I come out of this period. don't know how I'll emerge. And maybe we need to sit and use concepts and metaphors like the, the red lobster. I just love it so much. And then this concept of wintering, and I mentioned it to a lady the other day who was going through a dramatic change as her children were growing and leaving home. And but her husband was still working and then she has this sense of who is she now? She used a phrase called relevance deviation syndrome, which I hadn't heard of before, but I've written it down so I wouldn't forget it. And she said she's lost that sense of relevance. And I actually said to her that maybe then you need to just use that concept of wintering and just sit back and just let things happen slowly just to have a sense of hibernation and not have to come up with a solution and an answer. And like your comment of the eternal summer, always be positive, always, you know, come out of something that's significant with a smile and go, yeah, I can do that. I can cope with that. Yeah, just chuck it at me. So beautiful metaphors. I just love them. I love them, the sharing that you've provided over these last, um, the episodes we've had, Monica, who's just been delighted. And so I appreciate the fact that I must be doing all the drinking and chocolate eating so that you're doing the reflection and book reading. It's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. It's a good combination. Well, yeah, it speaks to my personality style that, you know, that I would do something like that and lose myself in a book. But you know, when I've been through periods of depression, like in Catherine May in her book, she talks about announcing to anyone who will listen, or perhaps not so much that, but certainly announcing to people who she meets that she had a major breakdown at the age of 17. And that's normalising the process of feeling depressed, of feeling down and out and like everything is bleak and everything is grey and everything is cold and there is no joy and there is no hope and there is nothing that you can do. It's a sense of helplessness. And to normalise it, you know, she says in her book that each time she goes through a wintering, she knows that she's been through a winter before, that there will be spring. And I think that that's something that's really important, that when we're talking about our relationship with others and our relationship with ourselves, is this relationship with ourselves to allow ourselves to winter, to hibernate, to sit in that space of bleakness at the same time knowing that from that we can transition into something that is different but is spring, is summer, is autumn, is, it has good things in it. And even continuing on that metaphor or that theme too, Monica, that sense of it's a change has happened and we are changed because of the, the process of change. We may be older or other things have happened. There's, you know, our body's different. It's different, not bad or wrong. It's just different and I think helping people or even allowing that processing of we have wintered before, we have done this before and to bring some some skills or tools, whatever phrase you might need. You know, often I say to people, you need a new toolkit for this one. The old toolkit needs a few extra things added to it. So what do you think we can add to this one now? Because this is different to the old. We're adding the experience of the old to this one, a bit like stacks on again like we talked about last episode. Yeah. One of the things that I want to share with you and, and you know, with, with everyone, with all our community that we're developing as we're discussing, 
is that concept that depression is painful. It's not easy to feel depressed. It's not easy to go through a winter. But it adds insult to injury. It adds suffering if we're expecting that we should be an eternal summer or an eternal spring. And, and that's the reason why I thought, you know, I really loved her book because it normalised that experience. And is it interesting how, you know, it's when we are going through difficult times that we work out who are our true friends, you know, the, the, the lifetime friends or even friends. You know, I love that expression, friends for a reason, for a season or for a lifetime. There will be people who will support us through different things. And that, again, that's another transition having the expectation that it's okay sometimes to end relationships, not just romantic relationships, but to end relationships with friends when for one reason or another, it's not long, no longer working for us. And how do we do that? It's very difficult, very difficult. It's a really good point you bring up there. And I think that concept of where people fit in our lives, you know, what is the reason? If the reason's gone, then that friendship or that relationship may need to either, you know, find a new reason or a new meaning if there's an importance in that. And and that is that sense of making sense. And that's why the wintering and the sense of being able to just slowly take the time to sit in that place of uncertainty or whatever you want to call it, whether we call it depression or just lowered mood or a sense of unsureness and then um, be able to find, you know, do we need, what's the meaning of this? What, how has it impacted me? Who is the person I was? Am I still the person moving forward? Um, how do I see myself? And, and the other thing that comes to mind too with this is our schemas, our core beliefs in life because I think Sometimes when we're going through transitions, and I'm only thinking of myself now as, you know, a 63-year-old mother with a large family, a professional working, I'm studying, uh, you know, hopefully one day I might have a, be an academic, I don't know, don't know if that'll sit nicely with me, but... You know, there's the, the, the relationships that have changed as our life changes because our focus and our experience, our time changes. We've got to then find where are the significant meanings, which are the meaningful relationships with either people or parts of our life, and then how do we then build that sense of anticipation? Remember we talked the other day about dopamine, that uh, molecule of more, that, um, which is that book by Daniel Lieberman. Um, and I'm just thinking that that might be just thinking about how can we develop that sense of awareness or anticipation in something where there's been a, a sense of, sh- of change, where perhaps our negative thoughts, those automatic negative thoughts are creeping in, uh, which are very much a protective uh, brain function. Mm. You know, when you were talking about that book by Daniel Lieberman and he was talking about dopamine, he was really emphasising that in romantic relationships especially, there's an excitement in the first six months of that relationship and how important it is to recognise that the pool of attraction that we feel towards that person perhaps is not uh, something that is a healthy lifetime um, uh, goal. You know, people often say, you know, you're always going to marry the wrong person if you're just going to go on that and what are the qualities? Like, what are the qualities in relationships? I was reading this other book and, and now I'm going to say, you know, I actually don't know where it comes from, where they were talking about the qualities of friendships or any relationship where friendship is a factor because even your romantic relationship has that and that you need to be able to trust that person 
You need to be able to to know that they won't lie to you. You need to be able to enjoy their company. There needs to be genuine affection and delight in their company. There needs to be a sense of reliability that when they say they'll turn up, they'll turn up. When they say they'll complete a chore, they'll complete a chore or whatever it is that they say. And there needs to be a mutual respect where you respect that even though you don't have the same opinions, you may do things differently, that you respect the other person. You speak to them respectfully, you treat them respectfully. And it's that you know, are we doing this with ourselves? Are we doing this with others? And when Martina and I were talking about the transition in, in the transgender space in episode four, we were talking about the reaction, not just uh, in, within the family to the announcement of that individual, but also in that wider sort of sphere, the the school work if that was where it was, you know, sort of happening, um, extended family members, friends, and and how even in our culture there are messages that we're getting about what it's okay to do and what it's not okay to do and uh, those sorts of things that we all need to be aware of and to tease it out to see what are we going to believe in and what are we not going to believe in because you go, well, that's our cultural expectation, but it's not really how I can have a meaningful life and be true to myself. Mm. Aren't they challenging situations, aren't they? Sometimes you just, you know, as I'm listening to you talking, very much a sense of, you know, we don't always have answers. We don't always have a way of responding um, I'm just thinking professionally here or even personally, you know, sometimes we just, we don't need to fill that space with words. Sometimes it's a sense of uh, allowing a silence too, isn't it? To just allow that expression of some, if somebody's giving you a thought or saying something, that just to be allowing a silence to exist so that we can put that, that sense of someone announcing to you some major transition, like what you were saying with your discussion. And sorry, I haven't related back to that conversation with you and Martina, but it was just so powerful. These were things I had not encountered in my own practice um, and even personally, but I, you just really reflect very deeply on the pain at multiple stages of of um, somebody's journey through, I even don't like the word journey actually, but as they transition through their own growth and development, um, just the the need to share and connect with others that have a meaningful relationship with you. And we actually have a sense of expectation as to how it may go. And I think sometimes the most appropriate thing to do is maybe embrace a little silence, isn't it, rather than and allow things to have a sense of maybe mentalising or some kindness in the silence or... Tell me, what's your view on silence as a therapeutic tool? Um, I find that silence is great for getting people to feel both really comfortable and really uncomfortable. And both personally and professionally... Yeah, well, I ran a supervision session yesterday. I've got a couple of um, social work students and some paramedics that work at the moment on placement, which is just oh, such a thrill. But I said that I said that to them. I said, very, "Silence is a very much a therapeutic tool. We use it uh, personally and professionally. Two to three minutes, uh, two to three seconds, not minutes. That'd be terrible. Two to three seconds is therapeutic and safe and comfortable." 
Anything more than seven changes the power in the relationship and actually becomes uncomfortable for both. So, you know, to be mindful of time and we actually practice then one second, two seconds and three seconds of silence with that sense. We started off with then, you know, those phrases, I'm curious, I've noticed, I'm wondering, which are those beautiful opening sentences in a narrative approach. So, you know, really curious. You know, what you've just said to me is really quite powerful and meaningful and I'm wondering what you might be feeling right now and then allowing like a three-second silence after that while you, you know, use that leaning in or those non-verbal skills that we use in that both private and professional space where we lean in, we look gently on the other, uh, we allow a, a moment for them to reflect and offer something back. So, and they were like, yeah, 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 three seconds, that sounds good. I can do four seconds. Uh, and then we talked about power in silence. You know, when does it become uncomfortable and shifts the power in the relationship? So uh, it was a really good supervision session with some students. It was lovely. And the, and the paramedics, it was interesting, they hadn't thought about silence as a something that was therapeutic. They felt that that was um, not something that they had practised as a skill set. Hopefully they're going home with a new tool. <laughs> It, it sounds like they are, absolutely. So, yeah, so the, the power of silence in both ways. And, and, you know, when we were thinking about that, I was thinking the opposite of silence is chatter. And, again, that's another book. It's by Ethan Cross. And he talks about how our self-talk really influences how we both perceive and respond to the world. But he was using it more as a tool that when we use the first person, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling scared, I'm feeling angry, and I'm feeling angry about this, that the more we use the first person, the more we immerse ourselves in that experience. And we can't, you know, how um, Matt, who you were sort of discussing things in, in session three, in episode three, he was talking about mentalizing that ability to, like a drone, hover above your experience and see what's happening and therefore get that wider perspective. That it's actually important for us to talk to ourselves, either in the second person or the third person. And I often catch myself doing that and hadn't realized I was doing it. Like, Monica, put your big girl pants on. Time to put your big girl pants on and do this. And yes, it, you know, it, you can tell how nervous you are because you're getting the P's and the B's mixed up and all that kind of stuff. But it's very important. Calm down, Monica. Just take it easy. Settle, Gretel. And so it's that ability to speak in the second person that allows us to get a little bit of distance. And it, when you do, do it in the third person as a narrative, Monica's having a little bit of problem calming down at the moment. Monica is having problems because, and you get even that sort of higher perspective of recognising why is Monica having problems? Because she's thinking this, she's feeling this, she's connecting it to that previous experience, she's doing all of that. If you journal in the third person, you feel a lot more calm and there's a lot more opening that occurs than if you journal in the first person. And this is what the research Ethan Cross was talking about. He's doing all these experiments with students about, um, and uh, not just with students, but with, with other people as well, about how speaking to ourselves in, in first, second and third person helps and hinders if we're having something that we really, really enjoy, write about it in the first person. Okay. How interesting. Mm. You want to immerse yourself in it. Mm. Mm. 
And so it's also that, um, you know, he was talking about invisible support and the invisible support, if we're, if someone is not ready to do any mentalizing, if they're just wanting you to validate their emotional experience, how dreadful things are for them, how, uh, you know, bleak the situation is, and they're not ready to do any of the practical solution solving that perhaps, uh, you know, as, as a GP, that's my default, you know, let me fix it for you. So it's something that I really have to be aware of, that if you are someone who's around that you can do invisible support. Invisible support looks like if you're a family member, you can do the chores. If you're a, uh, a friend, you can talk about, um, you know, People generally find. So uh, I remember when I was had small children and they wouldn't sleep. And I remember going to nursing mothers' meetings and how lovely it was when the leader said, most people find sleep deprivation to be a sublime form of torture. And I went, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's very true. And, and I'm trying not to take it personally and I'm trying to survive here, but no wonder I feel so crap and just generalising it and normalising it for me. And another form of invisible support would be if you, um, was what happens in supervision groups, we learn so much, you know, from our peers. But I also learn from the people that I work with, you know, in, in, in my uh, work, patients who will tell me about their life experience and I'll go, yeah, yeah, or it'll lead me to think or read or seek supervision. And so we're all, you know, I have this concept of always learning. Mm. And when I think about um, in our supervision, when we're listening to someone else's problem and they're discussing how they're struggling with it and then uh, perhaps a supervisor will offer some, uh, you know, hints about how to do it or some of the other members of the group. And I'm silently sitting there kind of going, Oh, great. That's great. That's the spotlight is not on me. I'm not having to, you know, talk about this particular problem or disaster that I've created, but that's going to be really helpful for me to get out of this conundrum that I find myself in. So even inviting conversation about, you know, you had this problem, you know, how did you solve it in the presence of someone who's currently having a difficulty can be a really helpful thing. So it's a, you know, when we're thinking about our relationships, some of them can be really, really helpful and others not so helpful. Others can be a bit toxic. And how do you tell the difference between, I know that I'm going into sort of murky territory here, but how do you tell the difference between someone who is like not just unpleasant to be with, but is actually toxic for you? Yeah, isn't that an interesting, you know, that's where we you do that self-reflection, isn't it, as to um, I go, you know, when you, you're looking at that feeling that is generated, that, you know, and even when I'm talking to other people, just, you know, tuning into a sense of, is this okay? Does it fit in with my values? Um, you know, what am I, why am I investing energy in this relationship when I leave it with a sense of it doesn't sit well, it doesn't feel well? It's, um, I, it, it tends to, if I'm with someone that feels quite toxic, you have a physical reaction to it. So I think it's tuning into that reaction and thinking, what is it that triggered in, in yourself? You know, what feeling, thought, a previous experience that has been triggered here? Um, very conscious that with, um, you know, the variety of counselling sessions and the people that present too with such a varied um, 
you know, issues and problems that they want to talk about or have some help with. And, and some people do trigger you and some situations do trigger you. And I think it's being really mindful of our own personal triggers. But if you're in a relationship that's important and there's a trigger, it's, 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 that's where you do that values clarification. I think, Monica, whereby you go, how important is this relationship? And not just, you know, surrounding yourself with that positive psychology, but just being always positive, but going, you know, is this something I want to invest time and energy and understanding into or do I need to step back from something for a while and, and view it in the light of perhaps my own change, my own different needs? Um, yeah, look, you know, we went through a, a really difficult time, David and I, when we moved into a, a quite remarkable, what we didn't think was a great transitional period of our time, but obviously everyone around us found it quite challenging. And that was when we went from three children to four children, then we had a big gap for a couple of years, or a big gap for us was like three years, and then we had our fifth little one. We found that all our friends that we had had, we had a huge network of friends and were very involved in the footy and, you know, in a rural community. We really got very immersed in the community. And then it was interesting that within about 12 months of bringing our little fifth baby home, that the invitations out to barbecues and parties and picnics and outings stopped. Um, we became and felt quite isolated. And I also felt that I didn't have a lot in common with some of the people that were previously in our group of friends. And we were looking for different friends or a different network of people, a different community around us that actually shared a different set of, or maybe we always had the same values, but they were being expressed differently because our personal situation had changed. And it took us a few years to adapt to this new view of us as perhaps difficult to have. You invite the whites over and you get half the basketball team or you get the football team and how do we feed them? How do we put up with them? And they, yeah, we had some noisy kids and, you know, sometimes they had some challenging behaviours. But it must have been hard for our friends as well because they would have then, you know, when I mentalised that, it would have been difficult to think, oh, we're doing this thing, we better not tell Julianne and David, they'll bring all those bloody kids and we can't feed them. So it took us years to understand that that was actually okay and that concept of the reason, season, lifetime friends. They're still lifetime friends and we're now re-engaged with them that all our children have left home. They've always been there, but the season and the reason wasn't right for both. So I think it's sitting down... You know, when we have that sense of being with people that have some uh, challenging behaviours or thoughts that challenge us is to, is to, you know, to, as we mature too, and it's a very much a cognitive approach, I, I gather too, and you can't do when you're in the middle of that experience of change. Obviously, sometimes our cognition and that, you know, how the limbic system becomes activated when there's a stressful circumstance. So therefore, you know, we're less capable of engaging in our more frontal lobe cognitive resources. So therefore, understanding that, that we are reactive, maybe taking some time out. Uh, and viewing it in the light of all circumstances. So I know that I, I don't relate, I don't disclose, I think that's an important thing too. Often in the professional setting, um, I'm in a very small rural community, so it's important not to do too much disclosure around my children and my family because it's just... Um, is, it's very identifiable in a small community. Um, actually, something's really interesting here. Am I going to do another disclosure? I've got a lot of children that I see in my practice in some of the primary schools and my youngest has just started a teaching role in one of the public schools and I'll get people coming in and I say, so who teaches you? Oh, Mr. White. <laughs> and they go, oh, he's so lovely. I said, yes, he is a very lovely person. I go, do you know him? So, well, yeah, I really know him very well. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And I and I, I call it taking the balcony view. But, you know, when you're talking about how mm. friendships change over time and you were talking about, you know, as your family increased and you had more children and therefore more chaos. And, and let's be honest about this. There would mm. have been more chaos. Oh, and yeah. which of your friends were... Um, like more or less comfortable with the level of chaos. Um, it's, you know, it's funny because I'm not comfortable with a high level of chaos. And so to maintain our friendship, I would have changed the venue. I would have said, they don't come to my place. Let's go to a park. Let's go and do something else, you know. But that's me. I'm very direct and I'm into problem solving. I, I, I'm into, I want to maintain the friendship, but I want to solve the problem because I've got a problem. So, so and you know, an ownership of the problem. Who owns the problem? It's, it's, I think that that's where we can get into a bit of trouble when we don't actually communicate our needs clearly and we don't invite other people to communicate their needs clearly or for some reason they feel like they can't communicate that need. But I think of you and David with your kids and... um, so, you know, sort of the transition that occurred as as um, you didn't get as many invitations to join the parties and, and the groups, it's sad. And yet at the same time, you know, and I, and I really feel for you and you talk about, you know, not disclosing, but at the same time, I think it's when we disclose that of ourselves and when we're vulnerable and we say, this is a normal human experience. We're not blaming anyone. We're not having a go, but we're just saying, this is what it's like to be human. And it and someone can hear it and go, yeah, I've noticed that in my life as well. And it normalises and it also allows us to then say, well, well what do I need to do about it? And, and when I was talking about toxicity, I was actually talking about there's some members of my um, family who are actually quite toxic. And yet because they're family, um, you know, there's the cultural expectation that we'd have good relationships and that, um, uh, you know, we all be close and that I'll have good memories of them, uh, those ones who've who've already died and all of that kind of thing. And when I do my work, I think it's one of the gifts that I have to contribute that I don't have that expectation, that when people talk about their close relationships, that I don't always expect that because you have that role in society, that you're actually going to be the idealised version of that, that in fact you may, you know, that that person may not be beneficial to the person that I'm working with or talking to. And that's, I think, something in terms of relationships. Like we, relationships are so important. Humans are social animals. We do not survive in isolation. Um, and we thrive when we surround ourselves with our tribe, with the people who really have our best interests at heart and who we can engage with in a way that we can contribute. But we have to be aware of the fact that sometimes we have to moderate our relationships with some other people, um, have you had to do that? I mean, to deliberately step back, you know, and take that distant view and go, even though, you know, characteristic, and don't go, you don't have to go into detail, you know, you live in a rural community, but have you noticed that or have you sort of had conversations mm. with that in a clinical way? Look, interesting. The first thing that came to mind as you're talking is that, um, you know, David, my husband, has had to retire, medically retire. So he's only retired couldn't go back to work and he was under 60. And his tribe was his work. His mates were all at work. Um, He had previously mates in the footy club 
he can no longer attend. So he's had this health transition and now a significant life transition and work transition. And that sense of where his friendship group was, was at work and his mates were at work. And so when you retire before the expected time, there is a whole sense of, well, who do I hang out with? Everybody I know, you know, if I drop into their workplace, I'm a nuisance, I'm in the way. Um, when they're ready to do things, if you've got some chronic health issues, then you're often too tired at night um, and, you know, don't want to be going out uh, late at night or the cold affects you or other things impact you um, or the heat, vice versa. Or, you know, being at some sporting event reminds you of what you could no longer do. So there's that sense of losing that connection with the, the previous life that you had versus the new one that you have to emerge and feel comfortable in and find a new group, a new tribe to be, to hang out with. And, you know, I've, I've looked, worked with quite a few men that have gone through these sort of transitional stages, uh, either with work or with chronic health issues. And it can be, and I'm not saying it's just unique to men, because it will obviously happen to um, women and all people. Um, it's a very human experience. But then where do we find that that comfortable? The, the new habits that we need to form around where we socialise, where we get that um, I just like your phrase too, the invisible support, you know, where that comes from um, and how we seek it out without becoming, you know, a pest or, and all the new skills we've got to learn as we move into that new stage of life, you know, how we learn to um, become this person. It's interesting too, because David, people say, oh, why? So why aren't you working? It's almost like, oh, you must be one of those rich folk. Um, and he'll go, no, I had to medically retire. So you've got to go into the medical story. And he's not always comfortable with that. Um, and he's had to learn how to say, well, look, I'm not comfortable talking about that right now. And they go, oh, wow, you know, as people step back a bit. So um, it's it's tricky. I, I've become really comfortable with using the word tricky. I don't have an answer for some things. They're just really tricky. It's, mm. It is. It is so tricky. Um, and uh, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, all the things that we've talked about in our conversations, you know, as we need to sort of end this episode as well, um, with a certain degree of sadness on my part, may I say, that that it ha- we talk about such tricky things, it sounds sometimes like we're being very glib or certainly when I've listened to them again, I wonder. But I, I'm hoping that from what we've discussed, that we can get this sense of transitions are normal, transitions are what we do every day. It's small transitions, it's big transitions. And there are so many things that we can learn from each other, like not just from our friends and from our family or professionals, but also the work, also the wider community, you know, blogs and groups online and even the the people that we have dealings with in terms of baristas, people who we get our food from, you know, in the shops, we can learn something from others, but we can also have connection from others that helps us, help us through these transitions. And and our relationship with ourselves is really important as well, that as we transition, we're changing and how do we accept that those things um, and how do we develop that new relationship with ourselves as we accept ourselves through those changes and that sense of identity, you know, I was telling you about how my identity is changing. I used to have an identity which, because my mum was such a good sewer 
And uh, so I, I have a sewing <laughs> machine and an overlocker and I have attempted to make clothes for myself all through my life and been a miserable failure at it and it's just been so frustrating. And so I have finally, as a result of my Swedish death cleaning, and yes, it's another book, look that up, <laughs> I did, resulted to, it uh, resulted in me getting rid of... Highly recommend to be right. rid. That's yeah. right. It, 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 I, I've, I've gotten rid of my fabrics, my patterns and my identity. I am not a sewer of my own clothes. It's never going to happen. <laughs> and, and so that's, you know, mm. that thing. And to maintain a bit of a sense of humour perhaps and, and recognising, I think when we know ourselves, I'm very focused on identity and recognising ourselves and understanding ourselves. And so I really love, love the four tenancy construct of Gretchen Rubin, where she talks about how we respond to inner and outer expectations and, and recognising that the, the more we understand ourselves, the easier it is for us to create a life that's really adapting and also really worth living and meaningful and rich and full of happiness and joy. Um, so an example of which is discovering you as a friend <laughs> and we're planning, you know, to get together and I'm planning to travel and do a road trip and include you on the schedule. So that's going to be really wonderful. We're going to have a wonderful time together. It will be a delight, absolute delight. And Monica, this the series that we've done, I think, has um, from a personal perspective um, and also clinically because so many of the insights, the metaphors, the tools that we've discussed together have really been able, you know, I've been able to integrate an awful lot of things into my thinking, a different view on the world. What I love about our relationship that we've developed over these, you know, easy 12 months is that you and I wouldn't normally... As, as even as health professionals, you know, I don't think I've had such a wonderful, open, valued discussion with a GP around how I view things, and it's different, um, but the same. And it's that respectful relationship that um, I think sh we could emulate. I totally agree. Sorry? It's one of those things, not just about meeting another human being, but also the delight in discovering the phases of grief and learning so much from you about how to be present with someone and how to see things uh, from the systemic perspective, which is something as a GP that I keep having to be reminded of. And also the delight in sharing our experiences, you know, as parents and as grandparents and uh, all of those sorts of things that we've been able to joke about and, and discuss when we've been both recording but also planning for these sessions. It's just been a, a true delight. So, so thank you. It's just been wonderful. And same, Monica. I really echo those sentiments. And um, so that's why we really, really encourage all the listeners to put some feedback, you know, tell us what you would, if you'd like another series, we can come back with some other things that might really inspire and excite other people also to continue your relationship with Monica and myself. Mm, I'd love another excuse to do more reading. Oh my God, how wonderful. I love it. I've written everything you've suggested down. And I'm buying today the Wintering. I really love that one. I'm going to get the Chatter book. Um, it's just exciting, really lovely. And Alain de Botton, I really, I really actually like saying his name. 
Um, and I'm really going to look at some of these things and go back and look at the role of dopamine in relationships as well. So lots of things. Oh, and another thing you mentioned too was the Tiny Victories podcast. And um, I've got a very, very dear close family member going in for some major surgery today. And um, I, when I leave here today, I'm going to actually buy her her own little pack to send um, her care pack. I think it's a transition for us too, because this is the end of this series. So this is a chance for us to say farewell. And this is our final episode in the series Transitions. So this is goodbye from me, Julianne White, a mental health social worker working in a small rural village or community in New South Wales, and my friend, Monica Moore. And yes, goodbye from me. I've really appreciated the opportunity to learn from you and to really expand my thinking and my presence as you and I have discussed things and as I imagine that, you know, everyone who listens to the podcast would really love to listen and to hear your feedback. So you can click on the link in the show notes. We'd love to have your ideas. I'd love to have an excuse to have more discussions with Julianne and other clinicians that we can learn from because we learn from each other. And so your feedback is so important for us to continue our learning and for us to, as a community uh, to expand our learning and our support for each other. So we really appreciate you clicking on the link and giving us your feedback. I'm Monica Moore, a GP with a special interest in mental health. Thanks, Monica. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face -face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 